So we're going to continue this morning in the sermon, uh, in the series on uh, 1 Corinthians and what it means to be the church, like the actual people of God. Like sometimes we have all these other ways we refer to church, but listen to me, church, and I hope if nothing else, this would be what would be compounded into our heads. You are the church. You are the church if you're believing in Jesus Christ. It's not a building. It's not a place. It's not an organization even. It's not a, you know, nonprofit. It is you, the people of God. I was talking to a friend of mine this week about some crises in the church, and they're real crises in the church, and they were kind of lamenting how broken and all that, and I said, guess what, though? The gospel goes on. I mean, the amazing thing is no matter what the world says, and the naysayers and everyone else, the gospel continues to be preached because of what? The church of Jesus Christ, because of the Spirit of God indwelling us and compelling us forward in our faith. It's awesome in times of great difficulty to fall back on that reality and say, listen, we have hope because the gospel will not be stopped. It won't be stopped no matter what happens. So we get to participate in that. That's pretty cool stuff. So this week we're talking about a sensitive issue. And, and matter of fact, it's really interesting because we're in 1 Corinthians 7, but the first thing that Paul says is, and now for the matters you wrote about right so we we're six chapters into this letter right and by the way keep in mind this letter was just a letter it wasn't like written in chapters and verses it was just written as a letter to the church but after that huge preamble those huge doctrinal truths those huge things about sin in the church then paul says and now that we dealt with all that stuff about the stuff you wrote to us you wrote to me about and so paul's going to get to now in the next few chapters the heart of the issue of the concerns that the church in Corinth had. They were trying to address with Paul. But I, I'm, I, we're gonna, the issue they've written about is very specific, okay? And so I'm just gonna have a little fun. We're gonna break the awkward. So we're gonna say together what Paul's writing about, and you know what it is? Sex. So let's all say it together. Sex. Huh? Not bad? One more. Sex. Yeah, that's kind of what it's about. No big deal, but that's what it's about. So the church had concerns about sex, and they wrote to Paul about it. And Paul wrote back. Now, I titled it marriage not because I'm cheating there, because I'm not afraid of putting sex in the title, but because the truth is that Paul grounds this whole concept in marriage. We're going to see that today as we get into the Word. Um, I want to pray then that we would be uh, sensitive to how we handle it, and we'd be honest about how we handle it. And so pray with, with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the great gifts you've given us in this life. We thank you that you uh, condescend to us and you love us where we are, that you, your whole gospel is a gospel of redeeming us when we're hopelessly lost. And this morning as we come to learn more, I'm so uh, amazed at the depth and the truth of your scriptures, Father, how you have lined out so many things if we would only listen to you, Lord. And so that's what I pray for this morning. I pray that you would give me a sensitivity to things that to me be said. I, you know, honestly, Lord, I don't pray against salaciousness because it's kind of fun to be, you know, like that. But that's not how we want to be. We want to be honest and genuine and authentic because this is real life changing truth. And so, Father, would you teach us that today? Would you cause your spirit to indwell us so we can understand your word? We need you to know it. And then help us to apply it to our lives. Uh, you know, there'd be nothing worse, Lord, than if we read the truth of your scripture and then walked away and did whatever we wanted. But Father, would you help us to incorporate this? And maybe not all of it at once, because it's a hard, hard stuff, but the things that we can apply to our own lives, to our own decisions, to our own situations, Lord, would you help us to apply them, each of us, as we leave today? We love you so much, and we thank you for the truth of your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so go ahead and open up your Bibles. If you brought one this morning, if you didn't, grab one off the end of the chair row. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 17. 
And so I'm going to, the very first line I've already shared with you, but it says, Paul says, now for the matters you wrote about. And then there's a quote here. It is good for a man not to marry. There's a few ways you can translate that verse, but it's a, it, it actually translates literally, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That's the thing, right? I want to say that because there's two ways you can interpret this passage. The first is that Paul is saying that to the church in Corinth in this letter. That he's saying, now to the matters you wrote about, quote, I tell you, it's good for you not to, or to touch a woman. But another way you can write it, and I think the right way we should read it, and the right way we should understand it, is this. That the church had written to Paul questions about not touching women anymore. That there was this kind of holiness movement. You remember Corinth was kind of a crazy place and anything goes. And there was condemnation. Uh, 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 Paul was condemning sin in the church. Remember last week, judgment in the church. But the reality is that in this complicated environment, there were some who were going, then let's just stop everything. Let's just quit. And so they wrote to Paul and said, we think it's good for men not to touch women at all. Right? And so Paul's responding then, and I think that's a more fair way to, especially when you begin to read what Paul writes here, it's a more fair way to read the text. So Paul says, now to the matters that you wrote about, quote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. A couple ways it is translated. In my old NIV, it says, it's good for a, a man not to marry. And then in a... Um, in a modern, or not modern, but the most recent translation of NIV, it says it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Because the idea of to touch a woman didn't mean don't touch a woman, right? It meant don't touch her in that way, right? Don't touch her with those intentions. And so you can see how maybe Paul is writing back to this decision or this aspiration that maybe we should apply this to all the church, that this should be the rule for everyone. And so Paul's going to write some things in about this decision they have made or they're asking him how they should make. So Paul, then in verse 2, we're going to move on now. So that's the first thing. Just know there's two ways you can read that, but I would say read it as the church had asked him. Oh, one more thing. This shows this letter is just one letter in a series of conversations Paul is having with the church. Now, we don't have, we have 2 Corinthians, but there are other things, either verbal communication, couriers were coming back and forth, some, somehow they were communicating, asking questions. Disciples were going back and forth between Corinth and Paul. Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And going back to the church. But Paul, at this point, then wrote a letter back to say, now to the reason that you wrote me. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. And then he continues in verse 2. But since there is so much immorality, and the assumption there is among you, by the way, remember we said it last week, when Paul had originally told the church there was, sin in the, there, was, uh, there was sexual sin, they said, yeah, in the world. And he goes, no, 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 not in the world, in the church. And so his concern's with us, not others. And so he said, since there's so much sexual immorality among you, each man should have his own wife or should be with his own wife. Um, and each woman should be with her own husband. So he's laying down kind of some guidelines in for what sexual relationships look like in the church. And he's like, yes. It, it, you wrote and said, is it good that you wouldn't touch women? No, there's, there's sin amongst you. So each one should have your own wife and each one her own husband. And so he begins to kind of lean into this idea of a committed marital relationship. And, and what's really interesting about this is Historically, that wasn't always the case. As a matter of fact, in the culture they were in, that wasn't the case at all. It was an anything-goes culture. And so Paul's writing and saying, no, you, shouldn't, you should commit to your husband or your wife. If, if you, should, you should not not touch a woman, and by implication a man, right? But you should only touch your spouse. That's the call. And so the first thing is we're going to see here is that marriage in the church is a call to fidelity. It's a call to fidelity. 
And fidelity is just this fancy, it's kind of like a, a chivalrous, I like the word fidelity, but it's this idea of um, faithfulness, right? We say faith like, I believe in things not seen. I remember one time I asked a man, I said, are you a man of faith? And he said, I don't cheat on my wife, if that's what you mean, but I don't believe in God, right? So there's kind of two differentiations of faith, but this means this faithfulness to another person, being a faith-filled person. And so Paul's saying, since there is immorality amongst you, each one should marry his own wife and each should marry her own husband, right? So there's, there's a context then for this kind of um, intimacy between men and women in the church. Look at verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital responsibilities or duties to his wife, and likewise, the wife should fulfill her marital duties or responsibilities to her husband, right? So there's a second thing that we're, we're, we're seeing here laid out is that there's this idea that um, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a committed relationship, right? It's a committed relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I thought I was off there. I'm like, wait, how did I get off already? I didn't get off already. We're, we're good, we're good. And so the husband should fulfill his marital responsibilities to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. And so that means that in this committed relationship then, not only is it that you ought to touch your husband or ought to touch your wife, it's that you, it's, a, it's part of your responsibility in the relationship to do so. Now you're going, okay, this is getting a little weird, right? Like, so then I, not only do I have the opportunity, because that's kind of what he says at first, like, nah, this whole idea of don't touch women, that's not true. Get a wife and touch your wife. That's a good thing, right? But then it says, it's a responsibility in your marriage. It's an obligation. The word actually means a debt, right? Like, have you ever owed a debt in your life? Like, you've got to pay it back. It's a responsibility. And so there's a reality right there that there's this debt in a relationship, a committed relationship of sexual intimacy. Then verse 4, the wife's, this gets really radical then, right? I mean, it's already pretty radical. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but belongs to her husband. And I can just imagine this, that verse right there. If you said that, people would just chafe. You know, they would just, what? No. No. Every time we do a marriage, there's always a question about, like, you know, are the two really one flesh? Or is it two people in a legal relationship? Can they just walk away from this later? How does this really work? And it's, Paul says, no, in that marriage covenant relationship, the wife's body no longer belongs to her, but belongs to her husband. The word actually means that she doesn't exercise authority, look at what the word says, over her body, but instead she um, offers it. Let's see, here we are. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but to her husband. Oh, that's a terrible translation of that, because it actually says she, she doesn't exercise her authority, but she, um, gosh, what is the word? It's not submits it. Um, she, she gives it over, like offers it, the authority of her body. That's, that's interesting to me, right? Uh, let's see. Yeah, but he, there's the word, yields it, right? That's how it actually translates. The, the wife does not exercise authority over her own body, but she yields the authority to her husband. Okay, so people are probably upset about this, right? But then look at the next verse, part of verse 4. In the exact same way, the husband's body does not belong to him, but he yields it to his wife. That was a far more radical concept at this time than the other way around. Very much so in that time, you belonged to your husband. You were very close to property for your husband. And what were your husband's obligations to you? Not very much, right? Just keep you around. That was about all he owed you. And if that, if he didn't want to send you away when he was done. But in this uh, radical text, Paul kind of says both these things are equivocal in a marriage relationship. So it's not, see, we, we hear that, we just misread it. It's not about one. It's the same thing we find in submission in, in Ephesians. It's not one doing for the other. It's doing it to each, for each other. 
It's this submission, this giving over, this not claiming responsibility for your own, or not responsibility, but exercising authority exclusively over your own body. And so it says in the same way, the husband's body does not belong to himself, but he doesn't exercise authority over it, but he yields that authority to his wife. That means in this co-equal relationship of a, of a husband and wife, there is reciproc reciprocity. Okay, that's a fancy word. Like every, everybody has a right. Everybody has a right. It's easy to read this and, and believe that, well, you know, Paul's trying to fix problems with men, but he's trying to fix problems with relationships in the church, right? And this is still the problem today. This is, I remember one time I was talking um, at, at this church about something similar, and some, I said something, and it just always stuck with me. We have this so backwards in our culture that before we're in a committed marriage relationship, anything goes. Anything goes. Do what you want. It's your body. You own it. Do anything, whatever feels good, right? And, and, and that's the rule. And then you get into a marriage relationship, and people start playing games with each other with intimacy. And that's completely backwards. Right here, Paul says, no, when you're married, you're, giving your, you're yielding yourself to your spouse. That's part of the package deal. That's the part of the debt that you owe in your marriage relationship. And so that means it requires faithfulness. It requires fidelity. And I have a question for you. Considering these things, what does a great marriage look like? Like, what does a great marriage look like? We're going to talk in a minute about Paul kind of talking about some agreement in this amongst a married couple. But many of us have kind of these fantasies in our heads about what a great marriage looks like. And by the way, this happens on both sides of the equation, right? Um, and so let's get a right view of what a healthy marriage looks like and let's consider it from Scripture. So first of all, we know we ought not withhold. We, it's not about abstaining completely. Like, I don't touch women anymore. I don't touch men anymore. If that's not your call, which we're going to get into that as well. But it does require faithfulness. Faithfulness to your spouse, faithfulness to one another, that's what the call is in the church. And so Paul is kind of raising the bar then. No, 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 no. Don't separate in some kind of false holiness. But if, you, if you're called to this, invest in this kind of relationship faithfully. All right? Picking up now in verse 5. And this is the next thing. It's really wild. But marriage in the church shows that sex is a big deal. I just alluded to this a minute ago that our church treats sex really flippantly. Like, they really treat it cheaply. And so I want you to see the way Paul lays this down for the church. Verse 5, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time. This is instruction to married people, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again quickly so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of what? Self-control, right? So this is radical to me, I think, in the way the scripture states it, because it says this, that it's a really big deal in a marriage. It's a really big deal. Now, believe me, we've had this conversation a lot in our family. Like, well, how big of a deal? And I've had it with other believers. How big of a deal is this, really? But it's a big enough deal that Paul says there are four things to consider if you're in a marriage relationship and you're considering not uh, being intimate with each other. And, and the first, here they go. First, by mutual agreement. The Greek word is symphony. <laughs> you come, you agree. There's a moment. It happens. You're like, yes, we're going to stop for a minute. We're going to wait a moment. Right? So that's the first thing. You have to both agree. I said a, a, a moment ago, um, imagine what your perfect marriage looks like. One of the a great uh, counselor I know, he says he sets with people and he asks them just to tell each other, what would you expect in our relationship intimately? Like what kind of life would you like to have? And be honest. And guess what? If you're two people in the marriage, it's probably going to be different. So then you can have a conversation about what that looks like and how, and, and come to some agreement, some symmetry or uh, 
some uh, you know, synchronization or some symphonic moment of deciding together by mutual agreement what is reasonable to sustain your marriage. That's the first thing. So talk honestly about it. The second thing, for a time, the word says. So you come together by mutual agreement if you're going to abstain for a time. And then the third step is crazy to me, for the purpose of dedicated prayer. <laughs> like, so these, you, you can get this idea that the church in Corinth is writing saying, hey, we think we should like wave off this whole intimacy thing between men and women because it's complicated. And he's like, no, 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 no. If you're called to that, go to that. But if you're going to wave it off for a season and only for really deep prayer, like to me that sets um, sexual relationships in a marriage on the same level, and this is crazy, but on the same level in some way of dedicated prayer to the Lord. Like there's just, that's the reason. There's not these kind of flippant reasons of why, but no, if, if you're going to stop for a while, you say, because we're going to really focus together, we're going to pray for something, we're going to, you know, it's like fasting, right? That's kind of the call. It's like, we're going to stop and pray. And then the fourth thing he says is, but then quickly continue. Like, don't stay in that season of life. Why? He lays it out. Lest Satan tempt you in your lack of self-control. That's the whole thing for Paul. He's like, look. If you don't have the self-control, go find a spouse. This is part of the purpose of marriage. Our cultural view has this all backwards. They say, it's, it's no big deal, be as sexual as you want, but then the minute you do anything wrong, ugh, well, we're all over you. You screwed up. You're unforgiven. You can't be forgiven for it, right? And, and the Bible teaches the opposite thing to be true. It's the sex is a really big deal. Don't do it. But when you do it, man, really enjoy it, right? There's no condemnation in it. There's nothing wrong with that in a committed relationship. And so this is a completely antithetical view that our culture teaches, just so you know that. It's very clearly lined out. This light up there as um, equivalent to, and definitely integrates in some way then, because he links it right into your spiritual life. Isn't that radical? Like what a radical thing to say, to consider this thing over here. We're like, okay, we're dealing with this real life problem, Paul, but nothing to do with our spirituality. He's like, oh, no, no. So if you're going to stop for a while, stop so that you can pray intimately to God and then get back over here to where you're supposed to be in your marriage. Really interesting stuff for me um, to consider what that really looks like. All right. Now verse 6. Yeah, verse 6. I say this as a concession, not a command. So Paul's not saying you have to do these things. He's saying this is an option for you. If you want to do these things, this is how you do them. This is not, uh, this is a description, not a prescription, right? No difference between a description and a prescription. This one you say how it is, and this one you say how it ought to be, right? Paul says this is just a description of how things really are. This is a permission and not a demand. He's not saying you all must do these things, Right? And then he's going to kind of turn into that thought now. So he's like, but this is an opportunity. This is an option for you if you're called to it. Verse 6. All right, check it out then. So uh, verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am, Paul says. So he's referring to himself. Remember, he's like, I'm a model of behavior. Follow me. He's like, I wish you were all as I am. But each person has their own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that gift. And so then Paul does this really cool thing where he links marriage and the call to be married into a category of gifts from God, right? But I want you to see something about the gift from God. It's not the, the gift from God. It's not marriage and church is the gift from God or the you know, gift from God. It is one of God's gifts. Because you see, he started that sentence by saying, I wish you were like me. Remember Paul, as we understand it, was celibate. He was completely dedicated to the Lord. He was not married. We believe 
historically, Peter was married. That Peter had a wife. And, and, um, and so we have this kind of different view of the church. And Paul's, or what it means to be a, a Christian and how we can follow God. And so Paul says, I wish you were like me. But each person has his own gift. And he lays out, one has this gift, another has that gift. And so he's saying, marriage? Because see, the problem I guess I would say is that when we see the lack of self-control, it sounds like you're missing something. And Paul's like, no, that's a gift from God. Like, don't think that you're broken because you have this urge, right? You feel compelled to marry. Don't feel like that's a brokenness. It's not. It's a gift. But if you don't feel that, don't feel like that's not a gift. Like, that Paul says, no, I have a gift. I'm not urged to be married. Like, Paul had self-control. And so he says that is his gift. And so this is one of God's gifts. Too often we think that this is the only way God can use us or call us. That's one of the, especially in the church. There's a great, deep tragedy. So if you think about church sometimes, we think people in categories of relationship. And you think about single people, married people, divorced people, widowed people. That's kind of, I think, all the categories you would have in something in there. Maybe separated, you could say that's close to divorce. But there's this kind of idea. And, and so there's this presumption that we're going to move people through the process. And so you have a singles ministry. What's it about? It's about getting you with somebody, getting you with a man or a woman, you know. And you have a marriage ministry, and it's about keeping you in your marriage, right? And that's a good thing. And then you have a divorce or a separation, and it's about getting you into another healthy marriage, getting you so that you can finally go, I made it again. I'm whole again. I'm complete again, right? And then the same thing for widows. You know, you say, well, depending on where you're at yeah get you back into a relationship or you know oh you're 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 a widow just you know we'll take care of you and dedicate yourself to whatever for the rest of your life and so and we make so many assumptions to that process and what paul says is that these are all gifts of god that there's no presumption that a single person ought to be married it's just one of the options Paul says he lives it out very well himself. And so we should not assume that there isn't people amongst us that are called to live out that life. But it's not a curse. It's a blessing. It's better. It's not less than, right? It's, 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 I, well, Paul says it's better. He doesn't seem to say it's equivalent. He says better if you can live that life. But don't do it falsely. Um, I've had the opportunity over the years to... Uh, to talk to young people about who want to be married and they're believers, right? And my own faith story, I wasn't a believer when I got married. Not that that's an excuse, but I wasn't. So I was just following my passions, you know? But when you have young people who are believing and they want a spouse, they begin to get really frustrated because the culture's like, hey, man, just go out and sleep around, hook up, check it out, see what you like or whatever. And it's like, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. And so I started really, so I had, you know, most of the young men coming to me saying, hey, what do I do, man? What do I do? And obviously in my life, I'm like, man, that's terrible example. I can't tell you to don't do that. You know, if you're believing, if I was believing, I should have done that. And, and so it's like, well, what, what do you do in your life? And then um, I said, this is the question I always ask. Do you think God's calling you to marriage? Well, yeah. Well, why? And they begin to say, well, that, that, I just, man, I just sense it. I just know. I, I, whatever it is, always. And that's something I actually had myself, the sense that I always I had to be married. So then, you know what we did? Let's pray about it. That's such a churchy answer, right? But let's just pray. Let's just ask God to do something. And we just say things like that. We say, God, you know this young man, young woman's heart. You know what they desire, Lord, but we know you have the best things for us. And so what would you have? And please report, great marriages will come out of that with fidelity, with faithfulness. 
praise the Lord. I don't claim any, uh, I don't claim any of that. It was God doing what God could do in their lives. Praise God. So it's just one of his gifts. It's not the gift. It's one of the gifts. All right, verse 9 then. Check it out. Um, oh, wait, wait. We got to go through the rest of this. So I say as a concession, as a command, verse 7, I wish that all of you like I am, but each man has his own gift. Each man has his own, and his person. Each person has his own gift from God. One has this, the other has that. Now to the unmarried and widows, I say, it is good for them to remain unmarried as I am. So Paul's just doubling down on the previous thought. Now you've been married and you're, you're not married currently, um, or you're widowed, uh, don't. Uh, Mary, just dedicate yourself. That's what his preference always is because that's how he like, kind of sees the world. But in verse 9, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so here's Paul's concession on this whole deal because he doesn't sense that. He can be self-controlled. But he's like, if you can't control yourself, go get married. He's talking to everyone now, right? If that's where you are in your life, go get married. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. And so the next point I wanted to make this morning from the text is that marriage in the church is a target for passion. It's a target for passion. Like, that's what God's design, if you're called to it, is, right? Um, years ago, I remember I was talking, we have friends over at Relevant Options, uh, Pregnancy Options Center, and they walk with people through unexpected pregnancy, and often we'll think of young people getting pregnant unexpectedly, but honestly, it's all ages, that's the truth, of people who are, who are, being, are clients there. But um, we think of young people, and we had that thing, you remember we, we co-sponsored that thing at um, Highland Middle School, where they came in, it was like a silver ring thing, right? And everybody's like, yeah, just don't, just don't, just don't. And I remember taking, and I'm just going to tell you a little inside baseball. I took Carrie Eight off the side. She was a director of Relevant at the time. And I said, I get it. I get the whole just abstain, keep purity, wait for your husband or your wife. But it's a God-given drive. Like, we didn't invent this thing. We didn't think it up. We didn't decide to turn the keys at 13 to 15, whenever that key gets turned, you know, that you're like, gotta go, man. Like, that's God. And so I asked her, I said, so how do we go, say both things. Say, yes, abstain, make commitment, wear your silver ring. I'm wearing mine right now. Wear that commitment. But then if God's stirring that passion in your heart, just turn all that passion energy toward the goal because you know you believe he's calling you to be married. Does that make sense? So in other words, instead of just chasing everything and being all over the place, the wild man or a wild woman, say, no, God's given me a deep passion, so I'm going to focus that passion on my spouse. Well, I don't have a spouse yet, so what do you do? You pray. God, I think you're calling me to this. You know how I feel. You know the, the desires you've given me. Help me find the man or woman you have for me. That's what this ring actually means. It doesn't just mean don't. It means wait until then get ready. That's the idea. And so it's a, it's a focus uh, for passion in marriages. Um, I remember uh, so many times, um, men and women are so different in this way, but, but women will be reading these, uh, you know, rom novels about romance and, and, and uh, being swept off your feet and uh, all that kind of stuff. And, and of course, men have a tendency toward like more graphic and physical things. And, and it's like, there's this kind of idea, but every time we aren't focusing either of those energies into our marital relationship, we're doing a disservice to our marriage, right? So it's like, you should focus our desires on our marriage and not on other things, whether it be romance novels or pornography. Those are distractions from what God's intention is for our marriage. And we ought to know that. So I have a clarifying question for you this morning. 
do you think God's calling you to marriage? Some of you are like, well, yeah, I'm married. Fair enough. So then focus on it. Focus on it. This is not an accident. This idea, Paul describes this bring with passion. It's like literally means a fire inside of you. You know the only other thing, and there could be more, but the only t- the time that comes to mind for me is the word of God is a fire in my bones, right? Like there's this idea of a deep, deep desire to pursue. Well, that's the way Paul describes this passion in a marital call. And, and so when you have that, we ought to. This is where we get in a lot of trouble, by the way, with some celibacy stuff because we, we force people into celibacy who maybe are called to another form of life, but it's excluded. And so um, they begin to kind of manifest really unhealthy behavior because they can't follow the call to be married. This is what the Bible says. Paul says, I'd rather be like me, but um, it's better to marry than to burn with passion, right? And so we have the opportunity. Now, Paul's gonna break it down then. He's gonna talk to some groups here. And he says, to the married people, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. So this is a command from the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled back to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. And that's interesting. Those words are different there because they're treated differently in the text, right? So a wife should not leave it's like there's a privilege of leaving it says the wife should not separate herself from her husband but then the last part of that says the husband should not send her away so he should not and that was very common in the culture i've had enough i'm sending you out i'm done with you right and so he's writing i want you to see what the word says here to the married and it's amongst the church so those who are already in a committed marital relationship paul's giving these instructions and it says, not I, but the Lord. Like, like God has given these instructions to the marriages in the church. Wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or separated until they are reconciled back to her husband. That's always the goal then. And a husband must not send his wife away. This is in a believing um, household. And so we have that, uh, that reality. So here's the very simple uh, term. It's a lifetime commitment. Um, Paul believes. He believes it's a commitment for the rest of our lives. We take those vows, you know, until death us do part. But then, again, our culture says, eh, or until it gets mildly inconvenient or doesn't really work for me anymore, right? Until it's just a little more hard than I had hoped for. Um, and there are real uh, failures. Uh, by the way, I want to say at the beginning there, the, um, the obligation we have is not only intimate obligations. We have other obligations in marriage. And so we ought to be working through those things. This is all on the heels of disagreements amongst believers you'll remember and so to be able to be reconciled in our marriage should be one of the normative experiences of being believers in Christ and I know that's hard because I know there are people who are believing in marriages and they find themselves going through divorce or threatening divorce but the, the Bible teaches that you ought to be reconciling because of the big gospel image we talked about last week right it's only for this life marriage is only for this life and so it's a lifetime commitment according to the scripture. Um, So that's pretty straightforward. Uh, Let's see here, nine, yeah. Let's see, 10, if she does not, if she does, she must be married. Okay, cool, cool. Now we'll pick up then, verse 12. To the rest of you then, so this would be all the unmarried, and this is Paul, he says, I, not the Lord, which is a really funny thing to put in the Bible, by the way. I say it, not the Lord, and then later it's codified as scripture, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her, okay? So now he's like, so you're in a marriage and you're a believer and your spouse is not believing, you ought not to divorce your spouse. If you're the husband, you ought not to send her away because she's not a believer. 
you can almost see that thread going back to the first thing. It's better that we wouldn't touch women, right? We can get these really crazy, non-biblical, spiritual perceptions of like, you know, holiness that isn't holiness at all. And, and so um, you see that thread here. You must not send her away because she's not a believer and you are a believer. That's not a, a good reason um, to, to do that. Let's see. Yeah, and 13, and if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, see, there's a couple of caveats there. He's not a believer and willing to live with her. She must not divorce him. And look at the crazy word there. This is, I know I'm a bit of a nerd, but that word is the same power and authority of sending away. That's not usually ascribed to women in the Bible. It's usually separate. You separate yourself. You don't send him away. But Paul's like, if you're a believer in the relationship and you're the wife and your husband's not a believer, you don't send him away. Like, because what's he saying? You have some authority there. You don't do that as a believer in that relationship. So if you're a, a, a married to an unbelieving spouse, and I know that often happens. It does happen often. You marry someone who's not believing, or you're already married to someone who is not believing, and you become a believer, right? So you're in a household, you're both not believing, and all of a sudden one of you has faith. Now you're in a difficult relationship all of a sudden. Paul's clear advice is stay married if they will stay. If they are willing to stay, you ought not to send them away. This is his normative. Why? Look at 14. Because the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. That verse is crazy. The word says, has been made holy. That means when faith has come into a household, the household is holy to the Lord, set aside for a purpose. What? Said that, no, 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 yes. Because the unbelieving husband has been, past tense, true fact, sanctified through the spouse. Why? Because the two are one flesh. God is a household kind of a God. He's the God who redeems a people, not a person. He's the kind of God who, you know, claims lives, not a life. That's radical, y'all. That's radical. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified, the same words, through her believing husband. The same idea. So the dude's believing and she's not. She's being made holy through. Mm, come on. So how does, how does that work? Already made holy. Last thing he says here. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy because of your faith. God sees them as holy. Like, that ought to be some encouragement. If we're believing in Christ, if we've received the gospel, what does this mean? It means that marriage in the church can be redemptive. It can be redemptive. There's this tendency to separate from the world. You know, Paul's like, don't, no, no. But if you're in an intimate relationship, it's a really hard thing to walk with someone who's not believing like you are. But there is great glory and great hope and great holiness, listen, and great redemption. What is, I want to talk about it for a second. What does it take for, an un, for a believing spouse to, be, to, to stay married to an unbelieving spouse? What does it take? A lot of faith, man. A lot of faith. A lot of trust that God is going to do something that only God can do. A lot of faith that holiness is happening even when I don't see it. Can't get off on this too far here, but 
you know, I was married for seven years before I was a believer and I married a believing woman. It's crazy. And I can tell you, not as the believer, I, I was never married to an unbelieving spouse, so I don't know the struggle of that, but I know what I put her through. I know it. I just, I mean, just all kinds of wickedness and evil, all kinds of annoying things. And, and she could have just been like, you know what, I'm done with this. But she held the line, she maintained her faith, right? And then she kept loving me anyway. What's the word say? The unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. Interesting, by the way, the order Paul puts these in. I often talk about the fact that there's more women in church than men, or often more women in church than men. And, and I always kind of lament that. I wish there was more men in church than women. Not that I don't like women, but I just would love to see men living out their faith in real ways. And, um, and it's really funny because it demonstrates that there's likely the same issue, situation back then. More women were, you know, women weren't as obstinate or rebellious as men or something i don't know and so they have more of a tendency to believe more of a tendency to have faith in christ that god was more um apt to move in their lives than the lives of men whatever that looks like but there's this kind of ordering that's interesting where it's like the unbelieving um, husband has been sanctified by his believing wife so paul says that first and then also if you're a husband who's not believing or who is believing you're sanctifying your unbelieving wife and, and, and otherwise your children would be unholy but as they are they're holy They'd be unclean, but as they are, they're clean, that God sees your household as a redeemed household. And that's interesting to me as well. Deep, deep theological stuff there. We won't get into it. But there's some truth. I just want to encourage you, if you're in that situation, I want to encourage you, if you know someone's in that situation, just encourage them in it, right? Like, don't think God is absent. He is not absent. It could very well be redemptive. But either way, we, we continue to move on. All right, so the last few verses here, because we're going to stop at 17 today. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is, I'm going to come back to this in a minute. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. But then I want to hit 16 and then come back to 15. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Man, that to me, like if, if you need some encouragement, like that's encouragement. How do you know what God, listen, church, how do you know what God might do through your commitment to be faithful to him in everything? How do you know what God might do through your faithfulness to remain single if you're called to be single or, or if you're called to be married to remain faithful and, and abstain and wait? How do you know what God might do through your faithfulness? How do you know what God might manifest in the future in your life because not because you did it, look at how strong you are, but because you said, God, you are worthy of this. You are worthy of pursuit. See, one of the fundamental things we get wrong is we, we, we submit, we, we reverse our own desires for what God has. That's what we do. We elevate our own desires wherever they are. And that manifests in sinful behavior. But he says, no, how do you know if you won't save your spouse? Man, that's so encouraging. That's so encouraging. A call to faith to belief, a call to faithfulness in marriage. But then there's this caveat in 15, and I think this is striking as well. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A believing man or woman is not bound. Look at the word. A believing person is not bound in those circumstances. God has called us to live in peace, right? You, we, don't, we don't ever dominate people. We don't demand. We don't demand relationship, right? I mean, God has called us to live in peace, and he's like, if your unbelieving spouse is not willing, how... Okay, so if you're called to stay married to your unbelieving spouse, but they might want to leave, why would they want to leave? And the, the thing I kept coming back to over and over again is because you're a believer. 
because you're a believer. They might say, dude, lady, I don't know who you are anymore, right? I'm out of here. And they could just have not be willing to go, right? And, and so this leads to our last point, which is this, that marriage in the church is not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Like, we elevate it so much sometimes, it's like, and, you know, and this is how God, no, 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 no. There is a gospel priority in our lives. And the word here in 15 says, but if the unbeliever is leaving you, let him leave. You're not bound in that situation. You don't have to chase or have to drag or beg or plead or, you know, it's like a a freedom of consciousness for them to say, I'm not doing this. And you're like, okay, but you want them to stay. Your desire is that they would stay. But if they don't, you don't have any obligation that Paul says there because you're called to live in peace. And maybe you've had that. I've had a situation not in a marriage but in friend relationships where they've just cut, like, dude, you're a believer, I'm out. And they, they cut me off. I'm not, I still love them. I still care about them. I would love them to come to faith in Christ, right? But my call is not to pursue them and chase them and beg them and plead with them and hope and dream and wish and want whenever it's not what God has. So there's this reality that no matter our situation, the one uh, unacceptable outcome is that we would not, no longer believe in Christ then that's not tolerable. Paul's, Paul's like, that's the thing. The gospel's a thing. All this other stuff is for this life only. And so we have that kind of caveat um, when we're married in a, uh, to an unbelieving person. Christ in our life is the only non-negotiable. And I want to say one thing in closing, and it's this. And I hope you can hear it today. Because we've walked, we have just stomped all over stuff that can be very hard for people to deal with and we don't often say out loud. And the intention is never to cause pain or hurt. But I hope that you know that whatever you've gone through, that whatever you've faced, that whatever you know, sin has happened, whatever mistakes have been made against you or you have made against others, I, will, I hope you understand that Jesus Christ is for you. He's on your side. And I want us all to understand that. Like, because we can go through and we can just lament all the failures and the hurts and the brokenness and the ways we got this wrong. But the truth is that Jesus Christ is for us. You know what he's never for? He's not for our sin. It's those different things. He's not for our sin, but he's for us. He's on our side. And so I want you to know that, that whatever's going on, that, that, there's, that this is God's work in our life. And um, the intimacy involved, whether you're called to be single or married, whether you're divorced or separated, whether you're widowed or widower, like whatever your station in life relationally with in an intimate relationship like that is, know this, that God is deeply, involved in the work of that situation it's not he's not absent he's not absent and so I don't know what it is for you and I don't know where you're at with this and I know I have all my own hurts and struggles and pains and joys and everything else about it but I'm just going to ask that we would pray for a moment and we would and we would allow God and see this I think there's a big part of this because God and this says we are called living peace just like we don't force that non-believing spouse to stay we don't demand or whatever it's the same thing that God doesn't doesn't force like he won't you know, he won't like demand access, but he's there, and we can just invite him in. The word that keeps coming back in uh, sexual immorality is pornea. What does God have to do with porn? Everything. He'll come in. What does God have to do with waiting for a husband or wife? Everything. He'll come in. Or what does he have to do with a person who waited their whole life and it never happened? They always wanted it. Everything. And he'll come in or the divorced person who's hurting, or the children who are hurting, he'll come in. So let's invite him. God, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for the truth of your word. And Lord, the, 
the, the way that you reveal it to us and you show us the things that we have and the opportunities that you've given to us. We, we confess that we get these things wrong so much, and I know I even lamented today in the message, Lord, I said, the culture got this wrong, but how many times we get it wrong? How many times are we harmful to one another? How many times do we sin against other people in our own lives? Oh, Lord, we're going to invite you in. Each person here has something, we know it, and everybody's got some stuff. And uh, Father, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, no one would leave unchanged, that uh, we would be open to your work, that we would invite you in now. Lord, would you just come in, in the area of brokenness? Would you give us the power of your Holy Spirit in the time of need, that we could see a way forward? Father, would you strengthen our call, whether it has to be single or be married? Would you just give us the resoluteness of the call? And Lord, at the end of it all, I pray a prayer of thanks that we depend on you, that you've saved us, sinners though we are. Be glorified. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.